This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorne. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Daniel DeBrock. Now, Daniel is a former chef, a current strength and conditioning coach, and the director of education for Kabuki Strength. So we discuss a host of topics from the international nature of his childhood, sleep, strongman movements, nutrition, mental health, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Daniel DeBrock. Enjoy. Well, Daniel, I want to start by saying thank you so much for reaching out and coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to the chat. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Uh, right now, I'm in Portland, Oregon. So I just recently moved here. Uh, I was living in Canada prior to this. I moved here for work, though. I work with uh, Kabuki Strength. So, yeah. 
Fantastic. First, first time in America, actually. I've never really... Uh, I was in America once before, uh, also for work, but I was only here for about a week. Literally saw nothing because I was inside the studio recording an educational program. So this is my first actual experience to America, American culture and stuff like that. So it's been it's been uh, interesting, <laughs> to say the least, I guess. So I thought that you were American and or Canadian. I didn't realize that your roots are in the Netherlands. So let's start at the very beginning. Tell me where exactly you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so we've got... Uh... Seven siblings. Uh, I was born in, or sorry, backtrack. Uh, I was born in Amsterdam, uh, Netherlands, and uh, I, yeah, I've got I've got a lot of siblings. So I've got five brothers, two sisters, and uh, we're all born in different countries. Actually, oddly enough, so um, yeah, so it was kind of wild. We traveled a lot. Um, family moved around quite a bit. And uh, at the time, I honestly actually don't even know what my mother was doing for work at the time, if I'm being honest. We just kind of ended up moving around a lot um, and then ended up coming to Canada at some point. And then that's that's basically it, yeah. So y- you were living with your mom, I got that right, and she was the one that was, was moving country to country? Yeah, yeah. We were all living with her. Um, and we were living kind of in like this sort of commune almost um wasn't necessarily the best living situation but uh yeah and so they had sort of like you know pop-ups kind of all over the world i guess you can call them and so we just sort of travel from one to another and then that's why we ended up kind of living all over the place brilliant so i have a lot of people on here and for whatever reason more often than not it's a military family that's bouncing from place to place some were just you know gypsy like parents which uh you know i did you know for a lot of my life when you look back, what are the pros of the dynamic that you grew up in? And what are the cons when you look retrospectively? The pros. <clears throat> um, I think the pros are that it was, uh, there was a lot of adversity early on. Um, there's a lot of adversity. There is a, a lot of like, we were very poor, um, just a lot of kind of like environmental conditions that were, they were very difficult. And so as you grow up, you can kind of take one of two paths. Either you can just sort of succumb and become a victim and be like, you know what? I went through this stuff. Therefore, you know, and it just sort of throw in the towel, I guess, or you can say, Hey, you know what? This stuff happened to me. So I better be a little bit more resilient and better prepared next time. And uh, I think my family was sort of on the latter side of those things where, you know, we became a little bit grittier, little more resilient, a little bit more um, responsive to, to to different obstacles in that sense. And so I think that was definitely one of the pros is just uh, the level of resiliency and, and personal responsibility involved uh, that kind of came out of it. Um, the cons were just, I guess, the experiences, <laughs> you know, um, going through some of the experiences. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely had a little bit more of an unconventional living situation we were living with some people who weren't very good people uh that's putting it pretty nicely and um i guess sometimes the stuff is a bit hard to move past so kind of you know especially when you're a child and you're sort of developing there's a lot of stuff and honest a lot of that is kind of what catalyzed my own interest in uh, sort of behavioral psychology um because you start to see how these things pan out like from a statistic standpoint so from a population uh standpoint 
And then on an individual basis, you start to kind of infer like, oh, okay, this is, this makes a little bit more sense why, you know, these individuals might respond in this way versus these individuals respond in the other ways. So I guess that would be another pro. Um, yeah. I guess it's sort of how I see it now, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that's good. And that's processing the trauma, which I think is very healthy. Um, I had no idea until I started this how many people in uniform actually had some pretty traumatic childhoods. And it goes of one of two ways. If it's left unaddressed and then you enter a field where you have to kill or you witness horrible stuff like we do in the fire service, you're on a rocky foundation and it can be the precursor to a downward spiral. Conversely, some people on here, and I would say myself included, just by pure luck, also had the tools as they were growing up to process that trauma, which then gave them resilience and, and gave them that ability, as you were talking about, to look at that as a as a learning path that, that gave you scars, but gave you the kind of the strength around that, that scar to then use as an asset as you progress through life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, someone recently a friend of mine charlie um she had mentioned something and I'm, i totally cannot remember what the name was but her kind of explanation was there's this japanese tradition where you take a plate you break it and then essentially you put it back together but you use like gold flakes to kind of reform it and so it ends up being this like really beautiful piece of art i guess and uh it was kind of like once something happens to you, you're never going to kind of get back to that pre pre-damaged state, you know, uh, but at the same time, you can kind of turn yourself into something a little bit different, which I thought was kind of a cool metaphor, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah, I've seen that very thing. And I think that's it. You, you create beauty with the trauma that you've been through with the gold. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with you having this multinational experience through your childhood, another theme that comes up a lot in here is, in my opinion, I've traveled a lot myself. Each country has something that it does incredibly well. I mean, for example, the Netherlands, you can look at some of the pedestrian element, maybe the approach towards some of the plant medicine side. Um, and even, you know, the legalization of prostitution could be argued as, as a positive thing versus sending them in the shadows that I saw as a paramedic, which is not a healthy thing at all. When you look at some of these countries you grew up in, were there anything, any areas that you remember in a certain country that you thought, wow, this is a really good idea? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't necessarily know that there was one particular thing. Uh, but one of the things I guess that I would say is to me anyways, it's become a lot more apparent that, um, consistency or congruence of values is, is very important for a culture and for a community. So we look at a lot of these more, you know, longer, established cultures like in the balkans like I, I guess a lot of european countries a lot of asian countries right they've been around for a very long time and have a very strong cultural heritage and i think that that's really really important because there's kind of a confluence of values there um i think that diversity of ideas is really important and America and Canada does a great job with that. Where they really drop the ball, in my opinion, is they have way too much diversity of values, you know. And if you imagine, <clears throat> you know, a family where uh, the mother values monogamy, 
the husband values polygamy and the son values, you know, independence and the daughter, you know, it's just like everyone's kind of competing and conflicting with each other. Whereas if they had a stronger value structure, they're free to explore different ideas and do all sorts of different things. But I think it's incredibly important to have a really good set of values that people share. And I mean, obviously in a country, there's going to be a lot of diversity there, but I think on some of those fundamental pillars, um, it's really important to have a similar value structure. And I think that kind of now, at least my experience in the U S so far has been, there's just so much chaos in terms of what people value. And if you have a particular set of values, what that might mean about you. And you know what I mean? There's kind of like a lot of ostracization and polarization of different things. So that's probably not the answer that you were looking for, but I'd say that's probably one of the more relevant things um, in my mind. Yeah. No, that's a great answer. I love it. And and it, it kind of makes me think some of the the diverse places that I have been fortunate enough to visit, it seems like the the economically poorer the area, the closer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs you get. So you know, if you're in the Philippines or, you know, some of these other places that aren't showering their nation with all these, you know, technologies and, and luxuries, feeding your children, making sure they're safe, educating them to become kind, compassionate, strong adults is going to be at the core of your belief system. What I've seen, and this isn't just the US, this is obviously other Western, more um, industrialized cultures, is the more affluent you are the more luxuries you have the further you get from those core needs now you find yourself divided over topics that actually if you asked if you got back to those fundamentals i guarantee you 80 plus percent of this country we all agree on but now it's sport teams and perceptions of law enforcement or vaccines or masks or you know left or right and and, and we've lost sense of what is the most important you know food and clothing and shelter and security and education and you look at the health of this nation as i'm sure you probably have an interesting lens you look around and say well this is one of the most important things is having a mentally and physically healthy population we beat our chest saying we're the greatest country in the world and yet you look around and like i, I disagree we are an, an incredible country but we're missing the point at the most important values that most of us would agree in if we were just pulled away from our extremism a little bit yeah and i mean <laughs> i'm not sure that i really have any sort of <laughs> unique perspective on that because I, I think a lot of people sort of talk about things but i I would say it's important to treat a lot of those decisions, especially when it comes to like political decisions and things like that from like a, a first principles perspective, because a lot of the times there's politics that gets involved in everything. And there's a lot of it's just based on assumption, you know, Oh, we should do this to solve this problem. It's like, okay, first of all, do you know, that's actually the problem. And, and second, do you know that that solution is actually even going to have any sort of meaningful impact on the bottom line? And in the vast majority of cases, the answer is no. You know, so I'm a really big economics buff. I've been reading economics literature for like plus 15, 17 years. And <clears throat> the amount of times I've heard people talk about what we need to do to improve something, I'm just like, you have no understanding of how, you know, macroeconomics works at all, you know? And so a great example of this is unemployment. You know, or sorry, minimum wage, let's say minimum wage, 
minimum wage is there to improve the standard of living for individuals, right? Okay, every time minimum wage goes up, unemployment also goes up. So you're artificially creating a better standard of living for some people, but then you're increasing the amount of individuals who can't meet that standard of living. And then because of that, you're having to increase inflation because now we have a greater burden on, you know, um, unemployment services and different things like that. So it's like there, there's always this ripple effect. And a lot of the times that stuff isn't accounted for. And so I guess being a little bit more thoughtful about what sort of processes we're going to, I guess, implement and then having better validation of it. Like, is this actually going to move the needle? How are we going to test this? Because I remember, oh God, I, th I think it's minimum wage. I can't remember if it's minimum wage or if it's like assisted housing or something like that, but there was some sort of, uh, some sort of um, policy that was implemented and it took 20 years before anyone even decided to run the first test on whether or not it actually worked. And lo and behold, they found it had the exact opposite effect. And then they just kept going because it was very popular in the public size. And it's like, well, that's probably not a great way to run things, but it seems like that's kind of how things are run in general. Like you look at social media, you look at just general interactions of people and it's more based on perception than it is what's actually going on, like the substance behind the interaction. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So I would say drug prohibition is a perfect example. Like as a firefighter and a paramedic that's traveled the world, I've seen nothing but the ripple effect of the dark side of that particular law that was put in place through racism and ignorance back in the 30s in the first place. But it's an epic failure that no one has the balls to step up and say, we fucked up. This is, this is wrong. It's just creating, you know, there's, there's absolute horrendous, you know, murder and torture and mutilation at the Mexican border because of this law. We've got gangs on the streets because of this law. Our police officers look like they're about to go into Fallujah because of this law, you know, so I agree a hundred percent. And that would be a prime example for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I try not to kind of get too, too involved in politics because honestly, it just stresses me out. I start getting really frustrated with the way things are. Um, but uh, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, to me, it's an apolitical conversation when you're talking about people's well-being. That's, you know, that's the core of what I do. It's, you know, it's not about politics. It's like, are people dying? Yes or no? Yes, they are. And they're dying of all, all these kind of things. That is the basal thing. And that should be an apolitical conversation. Should be. <laughs> that's that's the tricky part of separating any of that stuff i mean oftentimes i have conversations with people and then there's a sort of automatic assumption like if if you sort of delineate on a particular subject automatically it's assumed that you support an oppositional narrative and it's like well just because i don't agree entirely with what you're saying doesn't mean i agree with that guy or that guy or that guy you know and so there's seldom room for nuance in a discussion there's seldom room for like actual proper discourse you know i think a lot of i mean COVID is a great example where uh, when i was in canada there was a lot of dissenting opinions but there was a pretty shocking level of censorship um that no one really wants to talk about and people just lie about i've heard a lot of people reach out to me and they're like oh that's not happening i'm like dude i'm living here it's literally happening like and all that needed to happen was a public debate that's all have a public debate, have all the dissenting perspectives um, publicly voiced, and the best, the best one will win. That's almost always how it works. It's like good ideas will always rise to the top and bad ideas will almost always crumble under greater scrutiny. And most people 
you can't treat them like they're two-year-olds. Like they need to be, they need to feel like they're actually, you know, being given the opportunity to, to know both sides, to learn both sides and, and make a good decision. And the overwhelming majority of people are going to make a good decision, not just for themselves, but for the greater collective. Um, and so, and I mean, there's a ton of research that shows that as well from like a public health standpoint. And so I think that there are like a ton of opportunities that were just really missed when censorship was the game, as opposed to just opening it up and being like, Hey, you guys have legitimate concerns. Let's actually like address this stuff publicly, you know, and then people can make better decisions. And, and unfortunately, when you avoid that, you start getting conspiracy theories on either side and they get more and more polarized and it becomes really difficult to yeah, navigate the situation or even have a conversation, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it was, I was standing square in the middle saying, look, this clearly is a real thing. A lot of my paramedics and doctors and nurse friends are seeing the ICUs full of people that are dying of this virus. However, there needs to be a conversation of the underlying health of the civilian in, you know, country A. If we have those yeah. side by side, that's the that's the the truth in the middle. But it's like you said, oh, if you're a vaccine, you're a libtard, and if you're anti-vaccine, you're a fascist. Like, no, <laughs> yeah, this person is a you know is in great shape. Maybe chooses not to get the vaccine. This person maybe you know is is. A little bit more like an average American, they've got some pre-existing conditions. Maybe the vaccine is actually a good option for them until they can get their health back. I mean, there were, again, it's the nuanced conversation in the middle, but ultimately it's how do we stop people from dying and where are we health-wise at this moment? But what happened is you had two extremes and that middle common sense was lost in these polarizing discussions. Yeah, and it's funny too, because if you look at the actual argument on both sides, both sides are saying the same thing. They're like, hey, we are nervous for our health. Exactly. You know, and so it's like everyone kind of wants the same thing, but they're just kind of getting at it from from different perspectives. And you're not really going to get to like a best answer if if you're always just sort of yelling at people and telling people they're idiots. Like, and it's funny because everyone sort of knows this. And from a coaching perspective as well, like if I were to take on a, a new athlete and they send me a, let's say, some sort of food journal or something like that, hypothetically, and I just start berating them. I'm going to be fired because <laughs> no one, no one wants to hear that, you know? So, whereas if I was like, Hey, you know what, this is a starting point. This is where you want to be, or sorry, this is where you are. This is where you want to be. Ultimately, we're going to start taking some progressive steps to move you closer towards this theoretical optimal that you're looking for to optimize for your goals. Right. And that's going to take time. You're probably going to mess up along the way and that's okay. We'll just keep picking up and keep trying again and again and again and build momentum. And over time, you're going to start to develop the skills, the competencies and the consistency to actually reach your goal. But that's usually not how those conversations happen. <laughs> it's just like, you're an idiot because you don't automatically know this. And it's like, well, can you help me? Cause I'm asking no, cause you're this. And it's like, Oh, okay, sweet. Yeah. And, and like the people who are, big proponents of like a, a client centered approach to healthcare or coaching or whatever, all of a sudden, because it's something that they feel really strongly about that just goes out the window. And it's like, well, isn't that a value of yours? Like, isn't, isn't that something that's important to you? Just not in this context. Oh, okay. That's interesting. You know? So yeah. <laughs> Communication breakdown was, was pretty severe in uh, during COVID. I know a lot of people who got divorced. Um, I, I know people who like, who lost their job like it, it was it was wild the response that you see like it's pretty crazy yeah no it is it was so sad because again like i said the truth yeah. is they they all align i said this you know many many times if you 
have the philosophy that you want to get vaccinated, then you need the healthy, as healthy immune system as you possibly can with as least amount of stress to have a healthy response to the vaccine. If you do not want to take a vaccine, you need a healthy body to have a healthy response to the virus in itself. So you guys are fucking agreeing with each other and you like, I mean, families and friendships and, you know, marriages. And I know people that still haven't spoken to a loved one for almost two years because of this whole thing. And it's, it's insane. And it's that environment, yeah. you know, we have an obesity epidemic and I see some people in the fitness space belittling people because they're out of shape. Well, I always argue, yes, ownership is part of it, but we haven't exactly got an environment in a lot of, you know, suburban and urban America that encourages movement and, you know, good nutrition and all these things that we're, of course, we know about it. We're in the wellness space. A lot of these people were never taught about food and never taught about exercise. So as you said, you really have to walk them through. Someone might be an elite athlete, you say one thing and they get it and run with it. Someone else, you might have to walk them through what fruit and vegetables actually even look like in the first place. Yeah. And I think that's that's a really important skill. I think that's come a lot more into the forefront from uh, in, in the fitness industry anyways, is taking that client-centered approach and utilizing like effective communication because I think... I think a lot of, okay, I'm going to backtrack a second. There's a fair bit of research that, that suggests, I'm using that in parentheses, that uh, education doesn't seem to have a meaningful impact on rates of overweight or obesity. But that's incredibly misleading because that's, it's like, well, what, what type of education? Like education across the board is not ubiquitous. So there's a variety of different things that, that could actually include. And when we're looking at, um, when we're looking at education, education is an incredibly important part of any long-term intervention. And most people generally will know what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. Like if I were to give a list of 100 things that you should and shouldn't eat, most people will be able to pick out, you know, the quote-unquote healthy foods and the unhealthy foods. Um, but the problem is the integration of that, right? So how do you integrate it into your daily life? What happens when you run out of food at your house and all the grocery stores are closed? What do you do? You know, what happens if you're traveling? What happens if, you know, you like, there's just a million different things that happen from an execution standpoint that need to be addressed. And that really only comes through experience and education. And so if people don't have that, then it becomes very difficult to actually know how to execute. And so it's that, that critical aspect of, of execution. That is where a lot of people I think struggle, um, Whereas they might know theoretically, like, I mean, if you talk to someone about marketing, they're like, oh, yeah, you start a funnel, you, you know, you capture someone's email, and then you send them content. And they, they can kind of explain like the basic marketing premise um, from like a high level conceptual standpoint. But then you're like, okay, do it. Set up an email service provider, set up a funnel, set up a, an, an automated uh, response, set up a, a, you know, lead magnet or do all these things. And now all of a sudden they're like, oh, shit, I don't know how to do any of that. And that's kind of what you run into when when you sort of look at this disconnect between intention and, and execution. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very, very important point. Um, you mentioned coaching. So let's get back to your timeline for a moment so we can walk through your strength and conditioning journey. When you were at school age and, you know, I'm assuming bouncing from country to country, what athletics and sports were you playing and doing at that point? Uh, I wasn't playing any sports. Um, so we were, we actually weren't allowed to go outside of the compounds. Um, but everyone is doing specific like training. So we would do like push ups, squats, pull ups, just random body weight stuff like that, uh, on a regular basis. So I was actually quite fit as a kid, uh, before I came to Canada, 
Um, and we were all homeschooled as well. So there was kind of like our own curriculum that we just sort of followed. Um, and yeah, that was pretty much it. We just, you kind of do your push-ups, your sit-ups, your, your handstand thingies and all that sort of stuff. And so, uh, you just do that every day for like about 30 minutes and then you're kind of free to do the other stuff, I guess. Did you ever see the documentary called The Motivation Factor? No. You know, it's no. so sad. I've asked pretty much every single person I've ever asked. A lot of them are in the strength and conditioning space. have never heard of this documentary. There's a guy, Doug Orchard, who directed it. In the late 50s and early 60s in California, there was a high school that I think initially it came from from the Russian, um, you know, uh, Russian strength and conditioning coaches there and they brought it over here, but they created almost like a belt system in their PE program and the whole high school did it. And the, the principle was we have in the fifties, you know, all our fit athletes play sports. That's not fair on all the other kids in the school. Why can't they have access to strength and conditioning as well? So they had this robust PE program. You started off, I mean, I forget the, uh, the exact numbers, but I think it was like white shorts to start. And you and your team have to get to the point where you can do X amount of push-ups, you know, pull-ups, whatever it is. But it progressed. The top tier, you had to do seven times up and down the pegboard. They had those really long dip bars where they would kind of traverse and then do a bunch of dips. I think there was, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a three-mile partner carry. I mean, just... That's the top tier, like crazy. But if you look at these... That's very impressive for kids. Yeah, exactly. And But you look at these, and in this case, it was young men because it was still, you know, sexually biased back then. Um, but I mean, every single one of these could have been on the front of muscle and fitness. It was, it was crazy. But that was calisthenics. That was it. And it's, you know, it's amazing listening. That's why I'm bringing this up because it parallels the way you were brought up. And then that was slowly kind of, um, you know, broken down, taken apart. And in the documentary, there was one school in California that adopted it again. And I spoke to Doug and he said, what's so sad is literally a few weeks ago during COVID, they shut that program down and they never put it back up again. So that was a huge precursor to my question. When you had that growing up, what is your perception of PE programs? And could the, could we model a PE program on roughly what you were doing, you know, and this traveling commune as you grew up? I tend to think that the most important time to intervene in, in really anything is kids, especially when you're talking about health, whether it's physical health or mental health, you have to start with, with kids in their adolescence. And so, you know, if, I guess just to kind of give you some, some context around that, if you're a child and you have overweight or obese parents, the likelihood of you ending up overweight or obese goes up by 12 orders of magnitude. So you have a 12x increase in the likelihood of you becoming obese. If you're obese, your likelihood of mortality goes up exponentially. So your early environment is incredibly important to your actual long-term development. Um, and I think a huge part is social modeling, especially for kids. So when they see their parents doing something, I think that's where really almost everything needs to start in the home, in my opinion. Your parents need to set a good example. Now, I, I also think that this is a very, very fine line to walk because there's a ton of research and even just kind of common sense shows that when you start talking to your kids about body weight and what they look like and all that stuff, that is almost always going to be more detrimental than not. 
Whereas if you just model good behavior, if you exercise, if you find a way to make exercising fun for them, you know, so maybe they're not in a gym, but they're playing a sport. Maybe you turn it into like a, like a kind of a tiered system. So it's like a new challenge. Hey, I bet you can't do a wheelbarrow, you know, carrying my legs while I'm, you know, walking for, from this side of the yard to that side of the yard. You can kind of gamify it, turn it into something fun. And so they just enjoy being out. Hey, do you want to go for a walk with dad? You know, do you want to go for a hike? Do you want to go rafting? Do you want to like, you know, and so engaging them in things like that, I think is incredibly important. And I mean, I don't necessarily know what to do from the school system standpoint, but there probably should be a little bit more, a little bit better education just on health and fitness in general and making it more fun and making it more like as stupid as it sounds, you know, like um, I think in Harry Potter, they have, I, I don't really know much about Harry Potter, but I think they have like the the teams, the Dumbledore team and then the other teams or something like that and then they all play games and then at the end of the year there's this like big prize right so i think if you gamify things like that it can make it a little bit more fun it can kind of build up a sense of community you can all kind of you know do a little bit more to 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 kind of get some more points and get your team ahead um and it's all just beneficial it's all just enhancing their their level of physical fitness but it's also potentially teaching them to to work more as a team to to build community to build those social connections it's teaching them the the effectiveness of hard work and, and all sorts of things like that. So, and I have seen different schools do that, but these are kind of isolated, you know, incidences, right? And they tend to be quite effective. Uh, but most of it, I think, really has to come from the home. I think there's a huge, huge mistake that people have made where they're trying to outsource parenting to schools. And you just can't do that. You know, you, you have to take care of your kids. You have to teach your kids and, you know, take this with a grain of salt because I don't have kids. So I'm maybe just speaking on my ass right now. I don't know if I can swear, but. Oh, you um, can. I already did. So you good. Sure. <laughs> so, you know, obviously it's easier said than done, but at the same time, like, I think it's really, really important to, to put up a good example for your kids because you're the one they look up to. And that's going to mean a lot more than the teachers they are spending time with, you know, not to say that they don't have an impact, but the parents have a much greater impact and they're probably going to their, their, their behavior, their, you know, trajectory is a lot more deeply affected by the parents than it is the, the teachers um, for the most part anyways. So I'll put something to you being European, having lived in a Canada and now coming to the U S one kind of stark realization for me when I first moved again, I've never been an Uber athlete. I've been an athlete my whole life, but never, Never at the top tier of much. I won some stuff in martial arts when I was younger, but even then it's, you know, belt and weight and that particular organization. So it's a pretty narrow field. But when I look back at the UK in the school level, most of us are not reaching this incredible pinnacle of strength and conditioning. We're not training, you know, there's not TV cameras watching us play. You have the, um, the football players, about the only ones that get groomed and some of the best in the country might go to London or wherever and kind of prepare to join one of the teams. But the other 99 point whatever percent are just playing games. As you said, sports are games. So they play. And because there isn't that high level, what I've seen is when people leave school and they graduate, they carry on playing these sports, cricket, rugby, you know, uh, football, whatever it is. But they keep playing in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Not all of them, but a lot of them. When I moved to the US, what I found was this extremely high performance level in school and college. But then, and I, I use this, you know, 
analogy jokingly, but then there's a bunch of Uncle Rico's, you know, these broken athletes with all these I could have been great stories. And so I didn't see that longevity of that sport. They were burnt out and they were broken by the time they were 18, 19, 20. And so that movement sporting culture didn't seem to last into adulthood. And that is, I think, one of the reasons why maybe we're seeing some of this multi-generational, um, you know, uh, obesity and, and, and unhealthy practices because these people were playing, but they got broken mentally, physically, whatever it was, and it didn't have the longevity. What is your perception of that concept, if any at all? Um, are you referring to the difference in perception of sports programs or obesity? So my perception, and you're in the strength conditioning world, that we squeeze out elite performance from our children at the detriment of their health. Yeah, I mean, performance is always going to be at the detriment of health. If, if you're a high performer, um, no one at an incredibly high level is going to be performing at that level while simultaneously reaching, you know, quote unquote, optimal health. Um, I mean, you look at Usain Bolt and the injuries he's had. You look at someone like Eddie Hall and the, the health issues that he's had. You look at anyone at the top level, they have health issues. And that's not even taking into account, you know, use of PEDs, which regardless of what anyone wants to say is prevalent in Olympics, even under USADA, um, in, in most sports, most sports that require a high degree of physical fitness, physical ability, um, PED use is, is pretty prolific. Um, and so there's definitely a delineation between health and performance. Um, in terms of the prioritization of that and whether that's a driver, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's pretty far outside my wheelhouse. So I don't know that I necessarily would have like a, a really clear perspective on that. I would say that, again, it kind of comes back to, to values, right? So people can say everything that they believe in. They can say, oh, these are my values. This is this, this is that. But then at the end of the day, all you have to do is watch what someone actually does. You know, if you actually care about hard work, you're going to be a hard worker. If you actually care about this, you're going to do this. If you actually care about that, you're going to do that. And that's really what it boils down to. Um, and so, I mean, I think culturally there's like a, a difference where, I mean, especially when you're looking at health and obesity, it, it's incredibly complex because for instance, um, when I look at obesity, uh, I, I look at obesity more as a psychosocial dilemma than a physical dilemma. You look at the number of individuals who um, have a history of sexual assault or significant trauma and end up obese. It's not insignificant by any stretch of the imagination. And granted, there are absolutely individuals who are just super fucking lazy and they just don't care. Those people absolutely exist. But we also have different cohorts of individuals who some of them have significant trauma. And until they actually address that, that's pretty much the root cause of their obesity. Right. That's driving them to eat. That's driving all of these different signals. It's that's leading them to, to that end result. And so there's a variety of different things that actually can lead to that. And, and it's not necessarily just the schooling system. It's not just the educational programs. All those things can have a really significant impact. But a lot of it comes 
down again, like in my opinion, so much of this just comes down to the values that are instilled in you as, as a child and, and the family unit. Um, even the family unit is an incredibly important thing when you're looking at um, when you're looking at, let's say, childhood delinquents or, or any of that stuff. So when you look at behavior, especially as an adult, uh, the family unit is incredibly important. So I just wrote a paper on uh, men's mental health, essentially. And like th- this might be surprising to some people, but the number one most predictable Sorry, the number one most um, accurate predictor of of crime in a given community is the proportion of fatherless homes, right? And and so the fact that that is the most accurate predictor of of crime in a given community is pretty shocking, you know, or at least it should be. And so the impact that that has, especially on young boys, is pretty significant. That's just one aspect. Right. And then when you start looking at the actual health measures, um, their propensity to maybe go in and use drugs and different things like that and, and how that relates to health issues and, you know, lack of general activity, being out of shape, lack of social connections. So there's there's so many different inputs when we're talking about obesity that, yes, it's true that it is about your energy intake relative to your energy expenditure. That's absolutely true. But the variables that actually influence that input-output equation is very, very complex. And so I think that, you know, we can look at every different level and say, this is what we need to do to address these things. But I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think if you really want to have the best shot, my personal opinion, based on the research that I've read, based on the experts that I've consulted, is you really have to take this to... The, the child level. You really have to address it as a kid. You have to instill those habits as a child because, I mean, even if you don't have PE, go out and play with your fucking friends. You know, go out and play with your friends. Like, I remember, I mean, again, I, I grew up, we we're quite poor, like very, very poor. We didn't have television. We didn't have phones. We didn't even have like our own clothes. We just had hand me down donations from churches and things like that. So we didn't have any toys to play with. You had to go outside. You'd climb trees. You'd play like, imaginary football because you don't actually have a football you throw a fake football and someone pretends to catch it now you have to tackle them it's like you just go out and you play and you have fun right but but i think when you when you do those things as a kid and then you build up that community i think that's really important and that is probably the the bigger impact um than most other things um yeah, I think I'm kind of rambling. Sorry, you're taking me way out of my wheelhouse. So this is, <laughs> I'm really having to think about these things. <laughs> no, well, good, good. Because, I mean, these are, these are you know, the conversations that people just don't hear as much. And I think the mental health side of obesity, whether you're simply filling a void with, you know, whatever that food is giving you, or as uh, one of my guests, Johan Hari, talked about, we have this assumption that everyone wants to look, you know, the, the right way and be attractive. Well, what if you were sexually abused as a child? you may subconsciously not want to look attractive because when you did, your creepy uncle or whoever it was took advantage of you. So I think that, you know, as you said, the, the multi-generational trauma that creates parentless households, whether it's single parent or, you know, more often than not, a lot of these are even living with grandparents or aunties. Um, that's this kind of, you know, vicious circle that we're in. And, you know, we just lost Twitch, who's another well-known celebrity dancer here in the US to suicide. And that's just one of, you know, hundreds of thousands that we lose every year not to mention the addiction side which is probably you know multiple times that to me you know the mental health conversation would also be a big chunk in affecting the obesity and health side as well 
Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's funny because like I get pushback sometimes from both sides because I'm kind of in the middle. I mean, some people think I'm more on one side, some people think I'm more on the other side because I realistically I criticize both sides, you know. So I I will say like I will say like, hey, you know what? It's true that some of the some of the real causes behind obesity is trauma and and other variables like that. That's true, but it's also true that some people are just fucking lazy pieces of shit. Both can be true simultaneously, you know. So some people need to take more responsibility. Other people need a little bit more compassion. And and that conversation and knowing who you're talking to is very difficult to navigate, and it has to be on an individual basis. I don't think there's ever going to be a population based solution or intervention that's going to be effective. I don't even think that's really possible based on the nature of the problem you know granted we could probably start taking pills and things like that but i don't think that that would address the the main driver of the problem um and i mean there are things like we do have medication actually now that is like incredibly effective at just people will drop like tons and tons of weight um like but this is pharmacological intervention this isn't like some random supplement this this is under the guidance of, of an actual physician and things like that um but yeah, I think I think the mental health side of things is really important um, pretty much anywhere. Because like you look at, especially you look at the strength community, a lot of people who get into powerlifting or strength sports are a little, little wacky in the head, you know? <laughs> like there's a lot, of thing, a lot of things that go on in there where you go to any sort of high level gym and you talk to like 10 people and probably eight, if not 10, will, will kind of tell you about some stuff where you're like, oh, that's interesting, you know? And so... I think it's kind of interesting to see what drives people into, into these behaviors. Like sometimes it's like to, you know, like you were saying about um, the, the sexual assault, right? Like some people will kind of hide, have that sort of like retreat um, response where they just gain a ton of, a ton of weight. So they won't be appealing other people for the exact opposite. And they're like, fuck that. I'm learning to fight. I'm going to buy a gun. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And so you know, it's interesting to see where people kind of land on that spectrum. Uh, but in sports, especially in strength sports and bodybuilding, things like that, I sort of suspect that there's a higher prevalence of, I wouldn't say mental illness, but let's say like people who struggle with their own psychological issues. Absolutely. Well, you mean, you think about it, it's it's a, a muscular armor. A lot of these people, they're building around the small child yeah. that was hurt. Yeah. yeah. Actually, that book, Johan, uh, Lost Connections, right? Yes. You referred to? Yeah. Yep. That's a fantastic book. I really like that book. Yeah, his other ones, um, Chasing the Scream about the addiction epidemic is incredible. And then uh, Stolen Focus about um, phones and social media, another amazing one he just released. Yeah, he's he's a really great writer, actually. I thought he did a lot of the times I'm very hesitant to read books that claim to, you know, when, anytime you get like further removed from like the actual source, it usually becomes a game of telephone where it's like, oh, research shows this. And then you're like, no, that's not what it actually shows. It's completely out of context, but he actually did a really great job for the most part, capturing kind of the main fundamental tenets and, and, and uh, kind of highlighting some of the problems. So I, I was pretty, pretty surprised and impressed at, at, uh, at the job he did. Yeah, no, he was phenomenal. I had him on once. I've been trying to track him down again, but once he goes dark, he goes like pitch black. So <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, then speaking of coaching, when you're in the school age, were you always thinking about getting in the strength and conditioning space or was there another career that you were pursuing? No, not at all. Um, I, I got into this completely by chance, actually. So I was a chef for a long time. I worked in fine dining for like eight or nine years or something like that. Um, 
So I was actually a very good chef. And then I was fighting at the time. And that's what I really wanted to do. I, I loved both, but I, I really loved fighting. And um, I kind of loved it for the wrong reasons, though. And so I got to a certain point and I was just like, man, this is not this is not making me happy, you know, anymore. Because essentially I started because basically it was that armor you were talking about. You know, I, I had a couple of difficulties and uh, when, when I was growing up. And so I was like, you know what? I need to be able to protect myself. I need to be able to, you know, I don't want people to fuck with me and all this stuff. And so, I mean, you look at me right now and I'm like a big dude. I'm all tatted up. I have these scary tattoos. You know, I'm a big guy. I know how to fight. I'm strong, blah, blah, blah. And so it's kind of like a stereotype, I guess, now. But I wasn't thinking about that at the time, right? Uh, I was just like, hey, you know what? I need to learn how to fight. I need to know how to protect myself. I need to be formidable. And um, I really wanted to pursue that as a career. Like everyone was like, oh man, like you, you'll you'll smoke all. Like I would fight pros as an amateur, and I would just dust them up. And I was like, okay, cool. Like this is something I actually have like a, a really good aptitude for. And I worked really hard, and I trained like six hours a day every day for like eight years. Right, I never missed a day of training, and. Um, that's what I really loved. But the reason why I was doing that was because at the time I didn't know because I was just a little kid. Right. But I was like, I didn't want to feel scared. I wanted like connection. I wanted admiration. I wanted all these things that I didn't necessarily have. And then once I kind of got to, you know, the championship and I won, I was hyped. And then in about 15 minutes, I was like, I feel the exact same. This is not a good solution. <laughs> so, so I stopped. And, um, that was such a huge part of my identity because at the time I would train three hours in the morning, go to work, then train three hours at night. I did that seven days a week. Right. And I, I never missed a day. I would travel sometimes to another city, even though I was a kid and I didn't have a car, I traveled to another city every Sunday, just so I could train with, with my boxing coach at that time. And so then stopping that, I was like, what do I do with my life? And I just didn't know. And I was like, you know what? I just, I don't, I don't want to cook. I don't, I, anything that reminded me of kind of like what I was doing, I just wanted to get away from. So I just got a random job and, uh, at some like outdoor equipment store, wasn't even really anything that I was like super interested in. And it, it just looked like a fun thing to do. So I did that. And then I was thinking about what I wanted to do after that. And I was like, oh, I'll just kind of maybe try Olympic weightlifting. Cause one of the guys that I was coaching for boxing at the time, he was a former Olympian, uh, two-time Olympian in, in bobsleigh. And he was like, Oh, well you should try Olympic weightlifting, um, you know, and, and, and do bobsleigh and do all this other stuff. So I was like, okay, cool. That seems like a reasonable enough pursuit. So I started doing Olympic weightlifting. And then one of the guys there heard that I was a, a former boxer and he's like, Oh, you should come work for me at my gym. And I was just like, okay. So then like, he told me what to take. I took the program, I got my little diploma or whatever, and then he hired me. And that's literally, it was just, that that's how it went. Like he just asked me if I wanted to be a coach. And I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> so it was kind of like entirely unplanned, but. Now, what about the financial side? I mean, you would assume if you were a good chef that you were probably earning somewhat decent money. Um, no. No? Okay. So that's no, a complete chefs, myth. <laughs> chefs earn nothing. It's the lowest paid trade in North America, I believe. Really? And it's incredibly high stress. Yeah. So like we were, I worked at this one restaurant, Rush, and uh, it was a very, very high end restaurant. Um, I think it was the best restaurant in Canada at one point. But uh, there was a time where we changed the menu. We change the menu every day and you just have to come up with new shit. And so your level of skill had to be so high 
And I learned so much from working there. I think that was my first fine dining restaurant that I ever worked at, actually. And the guys who worked there were absolutely phenomenal. Like they turn out a dish where you're like, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Like it was literal art and then you eat it and it's absolutely incredible. So the the level of talent there was just astonishing. And in cooking, <laughs> everyone's basically like a high functioning addict. Like everyone drinks all the time. Everyone does crazy drugs. Like everyone does cocaine and all sorts of different stuff. I was the only one who was just like, I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. So I was fighting. And, um, and yeah. And, and even in spite of all that, the most I ever got paid as, as a sous chef was $15 an hour. Really? Yeah. You, you do not get paid a lot. Like it. So I think I stopped cooking in like 2010 or 11 or something like that. So, you know, adjusted for inflation, whatever, whatever. But at the same time, it still wasn't a lot back then. Um, so you really just don't get paid a lot at all as, as a chef. Now, maybe that's changed. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I was getting paid way more as, as, a, as a personal trainer. That's for sure. Yeah, I don't know why I said really an all surprise because my community that runs into burning buildings and cuts people out of cars get paid next to nothing as well. So I'm going to withdraw my surprise because I used to do a job that got paid like shit as well. <laughs> um, yeah, well, it's interesting because you would think that, right? And I think once you get to the top, you can make a lot of money. Like the Gordon Ramsays and those guys, like, but they're not making their money from cooking anymore. They're making their money from being like a public figure. And, and famous, basically. Mm -hmm. And owning their own restaurant instead of working yeah, in yeah. a restaurant. They've got a very strong like brand recognition. So so you were a boxer. You dabble with Olympic lifting. Walk me through how you got into the strength and conditioning side of coaching. Uh, yeah, so I was an Olympic weightlifter. Um, and I competed for a little while. was not very good. Uh, mostly just because I was working crazy hours. And so I just could not recover at all. Uh, from the from the training I was doing. And um, I was working as a personal trainer in just like a commercial gym and just started kind of taking on clients. And I think I did that for about two years and then ended up going off on my own and uh, didn't know how to run a business, didn't know how to do anything. Um, hired like kind of a business coach and he sort of showed me like a, a business model started making a lot of money, but was also crazy busy and overwhelmed because I didn't have the infrastructure to handle that many people. And so it was always just kind of ups and downs, ups and downs. And then after a while, I was like, you know what, I just need to learn a lot more. So I just started, um, I mean, I was always reading quite a bit, but then I just really started focusing my reading on uh, like sports science and, and other like textbooks. So yeah, I think I dedicated probably like about two years initially of just like really, really intense reading. And then at that point, I was like, okay, now I have enough to really call myself like, you know, a, a decent coach. And that's when I started kind of taking on more, uh, less general population clients and more um, sports performance type clients. Like most of my athletes now are strength athletes. So they're powerlifters or strongman or um, maybe people with aesthetic goals, like kind of bodybuilders, but outside of contest prep, things like that. Uh, but for the initial phases, I was actually coaching like um, a couple football players from UK, um, some rugby players, uh, BMX racers, just like really random kind of sports. So it was a really interesting learning experience. And then I sort of found my way to strength sports because that's kind of what I'm a little bit more passionate about at the moment. So 
Well, you have this background, obviously, working with food, and now you've been on this strength and conditioning journey from calisthenics in the compound to, to you know, coaching now. What were some of the, the aha moments, some of the myths that you'd maybe been taught early on? Because I mean, the, the preface of this is I'm 48. When I was growing up, it was all bodybuilding movements. You know, you want to get strong, you're going to go on these machines and you got to, you know, carb load and all these things, as much pasta as you can eat. And then you fast forward to now, we're like, oh, so we were basically taught a lot of the wrong things if you really kind of deconstruct it for the average, especially the tactical athlete. Um, so what were there any kind of, uh, was there a genesis of your understanding and some unlearning of some of the things early in your career? Oh man, there was tons. There was tons. Like when I first started out, I remember I made a video and this is one of the reasons why I don't call people out directly. Like I try and call out bad ideas, but there's people in the fitness industry who will specifically call out individuals and be like, you're a fucking idiot. And they'll make videos and they basically make their reputation on trolling other people. And, you know, it's like, that's fine. I don't even really have anything against that, but I won't do that because I remember when I first started, I was wrong about pretty much everything. Like I made, I remember talking about like starvation mode back then. And, you know, oh, if you don't eat enough, your metabolism slows down, then you start putting on fat. And like, that's just wildly inaccurate. So there, there, there are so many things that I was wrong about. And I think what that does is it makes you a little bit more cautious about the level of certainty that you're expressing when you're uh, sort of discussing opinions or research or anything like that. Um, so that was a big one. Uh, another big learning point was learning the importance of research and understanding research, understanding statistics, methodologies, understanding how to contextualize and interpret it. Um, that was another huge one. And then more recently, I'd say a really, really big learning point was realizing that research is incredibly limited. And in a lot of cases, like it's just it's never going to do a very good job of telling us what actually happens with athletes at a higher level. Uh, and, and I know I'll get pushback on that. It seems kind of counterintuitive because a lot of the stuff that I do is research based. Like I'm an educator. <laughs> so I, I write a lot of research reviews. I, I, um, interpret and share a lot of educational content that's based on the current literature, but there's a level of integrated experience that has to be there as well. So, for instance, there was a, a study that recently came out that was talking about how, you know, there was not really any significant difference in that the grip width had on a bench press uh, in, I think, recruitment of the chest or something like that. I don't even need to read that study to know that's not true. I just don't need to read that, you know, to know that's not true. Because as you change your leverages, how load is applied to the body changes how force is generated and transferred through the body changes. Um, if, you know, even just from a strength perspective, right? Like if, if you're a strength athlete and you're weak off the chest, that's predominantly because your pecs are too weak. What do you do? You do wide grip bench press or you do chest based exercises, right? So wide grip bench press being one of them or feet up bench press because it specifically targets your chest a little bit more. Do I have a meta-analysis to prove that? No. But at the same time, I don't need one because I have athletes and I have their results, which is far more uh, far more reliable than, than a single study done on novice trainees. You don't even necessarily know how they're executing the movements. Like, and, and I think people who aren't necessarily that involved in research, it can be difficult to kind of spot some of these 
some of these things. But if you've been involved with it for a long time, you sort of know what it is that you need to kind of pick at in order to sort of determine the validity of a test, or at least it's relevant. So I'm not dismissing the paper. So I did end up reading it, obviously, but I just questioned some of the, some of the claims that were made. I'm, I'm not convinced, basically, at this point. Um, and so I think that on the one hand, people used to have this over-reliance on anecdote and personal experience, but then it kind of, at least in my sort of niche that I'm working in, swung all the way to the other side where now, you know, in order to say anything, you also need to provide like a PubMed link. And it's like, dude, this is not how coaching works. Like before we had like actual research, before research sort of permeated S&C and strength sports and all that stuff, we had Arnold Schwarzenegger. We had incredibly fast uh, sprinters. We had incredibly strong Olympic weightlifters. You know what I mean? So like we've had athletes before we had researchers and they were phenomenal. And now how much better are they? If you actually look at the records, they're not that much better. So the idea that like scientists know best when they're not coaches and they're not athletes is, is a pretty dangerous thing to, to just assume on its own. So there has to be an integration between the research that is incredibly valuable and, and elucidates a lot of the um, kind of underpinnings of what we're seeing, but it has to be integrated with uh, practical experience and hands-on experience. Like I would never hire a weak strength coach. I would never hire an overweight nutritionist. I would never hire a broke financial advisor. And these things are somehow now controversial statements to say. And it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not going to hire you because you're weak. Sorry. You know, you you clearly don't know what you're doing. Now, there are a couple of caveats to this, obviously. Like if their primary focus is not strength and their objectives for training maybe are endurance or something like that, then that's perfectly fine. But you need to show me that you've actually produced some strength athletes that are actually notable or else I'm just not really going to listen to you. You know, or at least I'm going to be very suspicious of or some of the claims you make. I, I'm I'm probably going to be a little bit more suspicious of, you know. So, one of the I'd phrases say those are one of the big ones. Brilliant. One of the phrases that I love, and I can't remember who even I heard say it originally, but is "Don't wait for science to prove what you already know." And you look at you know the weight loss stuff and the strength and conditioning stuff and the mental health stuff. I mean. Go outside, walk your dog, leave your phone at home. I don't need a fucking research paper to show me that that works. I can feel it in myself. And, you know, I, I actually went to University of North London, got my sports science two-year degree and then finished off in University of Florida, my exercise physiology. So I've been exposed to the research world. Um, but I, my vision was A, the, a lot of the research was, was, you know, very, very old in the first place. Secondly, it was very myopic. And by looking at these little slices of performance, you're missing the overall thing that, again, 99% of the population care about. If you're an elite athlete and you're trying to squeeze out 0.1% of performance, maybe that's you know the research that you might look at. But to me, people have become so distracted by science, they're missing just the common sense things. And as we talked about, and as, I mean, you hit on this exact point, go pre-science there are incredible strength athletes and endurance athletes and phenomenal swimmers and all these people that were moving the same way that we've moved for millennia. And then we have the arrogance to go, oh, no, but they didn't know what they were talking about. This study shows, no, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. You know, if, if you know that it works, then no research is done the same way in the fire service. If we're not sleeping every third day, 
I don't need a fucking research paper to tell me that that's incredibly dangerous for their mental and physical health. Yeah, and, and so it's funny because like the process that you and I are talking about, that's actual science, right? But a lot of the times it becomes very disconnected. So like when you talk to a lot of these really high-level researchers that actually are involved in coaching, sport coaching and things like that, they'll say the exact same thing that I'm saying. They're like, uh, they're like, Hey, there needs to be a good integration. Like these are, these are things that we're, we're trying to answer very specific questions in a very specific context, you know, and it's not necessarily applicable to everything else in, in, in sport. Right. Um, and there needs to be that integration, but that's actual science. Right. Whereas I think a lot of the times where people on social media and, and commonly will sort of like cite an abstract, that's only part of the scientific process. That's, that's, that's the research side of things. That's, you know, some of the application that's, you know, but it's, it's not this sort of more holistic approach and that larger, broader approach is ultimately trying to determine how do we produce this result and what produces this result. And in order to do that, you can't necessarily just stay in a lab. You have to actually work with high level athletes. And that's why a lot of like, it's funny too, because a lot of research is done sort of retroactively, you know, they'll look at bodybuilders and say, Hey, why are they eating a bunch of protein? And then they start studying it. They start studying muscle protein synthesis. They start, you know, studying refractory periods and, and protein breakdown and, and all these different things, but they're doing it retroactively a lot of the times because they see what athletes are doing. They're trying to figure out why they're doing it. And so, like you said, if, if every bodybuilder is saying, Hey, protein is really important at the very least, I'm going to say, Hey, you know what, maybe I should put some weight into that. Even if I don't know, I should probably put a little bit of weight into that. Maybe they don't understand why. Maybe it's because of adjacent variables. Maybe it's, you know, but at the end of the day, there's something there. And so, you know, good scientists are the ones who, who understand that. It's not just about what you see in a lab. There's this entire comprehensive structure to it. And utilizing both sides is what makes actual science really high quality. So, I'm not pitting like bros and athletes versus researchers. It's like all of it is part of the exact same thing. And so I guess I just kind of want to clarify that for, for some people who are maybe going to think that I'm like bashing on, on research or anything like that. Like there's a difference between a weak nerd telling me something and a strong nerd telling me something. I'm going to listen to that strong nerd because he's got both. And the cool thing about that is now there's actually quite a lot. Like you look like you look at, we got Dr. Mike Isertel. Right. He's got his his PhD in, in what sport physiology or something like that. You look at uh, Jackson Payos, who he's got his PhD. I can't remember in what, but he's a big jack bodybuilder. You look at Lane Norton, who's a powerlifter and bodybuilder. So there's a lot more people who are coming out now who have a great education, but then they also have a really, really solid um, athletic background. Greg Knuckles is another good one. He's got his master's in sports science and he was a world record holder for the squat. Right. So like these people are doing both. And so they have a much better contextual understanding of how a lot of the science can apply to real world scenarios. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really disappointing because I follow this one guy. I've been eating raw liver for about a year now. I haven't put on a pound. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's honestly shocking how many like fitness professionals are coming out and like, Oh my God, he's, he's not natural. And I'm like, yeah, but you knew that. We all so knew why, that. why is this news? Like, <laughs> why is this news? Why are we talking about it? It's it's honestly hilarious. It's just clickbait, though. That's the thing. Everything they're accusing him of doing and being dishonest and and just doing it to create traffic and just sensationalizing stuff. It's like you're doing the same thing now by 
bringing his name up and by like throwing him under the bus and creating all these reaction videos. It's like, you already knew that you're just chasing his coattails, which is a great business decision because it's going to get more traffic, but I don't know. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I just was, I actually shared a video cause I was so disgusted, but then I was um, educated that it was actually made prior, but he stood outside Buckingham Palace with his shirt off, shouting at, through the gates, saying he's the liver king. And I thought, and we thought it was right after the Queen had passed away, which is even more disrespectful, but it wasn't. But regardless, giant tool. But yeah, I mean, I agree completely. But I mean, how many other people in that space have also claimed that they're completely natural and we're all going, no, you're not as well. So, but I think that's misleading because you and I know that they're not. I've you know been athlete my whole life and I'm still 170 pounds. I'm not a strength athlete, but you know it doesn't just magically go on. Unlike my uh, fellow 30 and 40 year olds that magically start TRT and all of a sudden they're telling me how I should work out. That's a whole other conversation. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know it's 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 a lot of misinformation and it's dangerous because those people that you talked about that are trying to navigate their way into some sort of healthy lifestyle. Some of them come across this bullshit and then that sends them down a com completely wrong path then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another thing is like sifting through information and having some sort of system to quantify the validity of, of information you're receiving. And unfortunately, unless you actually have the wherewithal to, to dive into it and become pretty well versed, you don't necessarily have a good methodology. You know, I think that there are a couple things that you can do that might act as a proxy or a buffer, but it's pretty darn hard if you don't know, because like, I don't know anything about cars. I have, if, if I go to a mechanic and I'm like, Hey, what's going on in my car? And he's like, Oh, your Johnson rod's broken. I'm like, yeah, I guess my Johnson rod's broken. He's like, it's going to cost <laughs> you 10 grand. I'm like, I suppose I have no way of, of evaluating that. Right. And so and I mean, you might say, okay, well, you can go to another mechanic and get a second opinion. Cool. Which mechanic? Because maybe the other mechanic's going to, you know, throw me through the ringer as well. So, and maybe I go to five and all five give me descending, you know, prices. But at the end of the day, I'm still being charged three X more than, than what I need or what it, what it should cost. Right. So in the fitness industry, you know, this person says this, this person says that, this person says this. And the biggest thing that's lacking is context. So, you know, two seemingly oppositional statements can actually be correct. Um, depending on the context and, and even that statement alone is like, can be pretty confusing. So I think when you're looking at, at information, I think the best thing to do firstly is say, is this even relevant to me? You know, like, like you said, you don't need a study to, to, to know what you already kind of can observe for yourself or something like that. Sorry, I'm totally butchering your, your quote, but, uh, but it's like, Hey, I need to lose weight. Okay. Do I really need to start understanding like fat oxidation? Probably not. Probably just start need to, I probably just need to start being a little bit more active. Let's just start there. You know, um, I need to lift weights to become stronger. Okay. Maybe go and talk to a strong guy, you know, maybe go to a gym and like, look for a strong guy and be like, Hey man, I don't know anything about lifting weights and I'm really confused. Can you just kind of give me some advice? Maybe hire a personal trainer, maybe, you know what I mean? So I, I think there are ways around it and I always look for, for like social proof. You know, if someone can demonstrate 
I've got a lot of really high-level strength athletes. Okay, they're probably pretty credible. If someone's created a lot of high-level bodybuilders, they're probably pretty credible, you know, because that's ultimately what you want. And now there's this kind of emergence of these weak, skinny nerds who are trying to tell all these jacked monsters what they're doing wrong. And it's like, look, man, like you might sound really eloquent and you might be using a lot of technical jargon. You might be very smart, but you're still a weak nerd. And that guy's still a huge fucking monster. And that can't all be explained by genetics, you know? So I, I think that, you know, the outcome has to be a really, really big determining factor where you see people and you say, okay, do they have the result that I want? This is if you're hiring a coach, you know, this is kind of my criteria. Do they have the result that they want? Or did they at one point have the result that I, that I want? Have they produced not just adopted athletes that have the result that I want? Have they demonstrated some sort of, uh, you know, level of education, right? Whether it's formal education or informal education. And then how are they at communicating? What are their communication skills? How are they in terms of building relationships and things like that? That's another important one. So if you're looking for a coach, if you're looking to kind of identify someone who's maybe a good resource, those would be the things that I kind of look for. Um, because it's not foolproof, but nothing's really foolproof. But it's it's a decent enough proxy where if they sort of check off all of these boxes, I mean, you probably would guess that they're going to be fairly reliable, you know? Absolutely. Well, I mean, there are some kind of organizations or groups that I think are pretty universally accepted as trustworthy sources. I would argue Kabuki is definitely one of those. So how did you find yourself joining that organization? Man, honestly, luck. <laughs> so um, I was, uh, I had my own online business. Um, I guess still do, but uh, just because of conflict of interest, what I'm doing with that is very different now. Um, and I reached out to a friend who had been writing for T Nation, and I was like, "Hey, man, like, how did you start writing for this this publication?" He's like, "Well, I, you know, uh, submitted, um, or I, I reached out to the editors, and I kind of built this relationship with them." He gave me this like very long explanation. And he had like a bunch of advice and stuff like that. And then I was like, all right, cool. I appreciate that. But I was just like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm just going to reach out. I'm just going to submit an article and see what happens, you know, cause I, I don't really like going through these convoluted things. I'm usually like, what can I do? I'd be more aggressive with it and then just shoot. Um, so that's what I did. I submitted an article and then it got uh, accepted and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I guess I must've got lucky. So I submitted another article that got accepted. I was like, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool. So I went to another publication and another publication, another book. And I just went to like 10, 15 different publications and all my articles kept getting accepted. And I was like, oh, I guess it's just, you just have to do that. That's pretty easy then. I don't know why more people don't do this. And um, and then I submitted a big one to, to Kabuki and then they accepted it. And then I did another one. And this one was like a really, really comprehensive one. Um, and then they accepted that one as well. And then I kept writing more and more and more for all these different publications. And then... Uh, the um at the time kind of the head coach reached out to me and was like hey we have this uh position for a coach uh, opening up and we we're wondering if you wanted to apply so like oh yeah that sounds amazing right so i applied and then i went through my first interview did that and i was like okay i didn't really think much of it because to be honest i was like well they're, they're getting thousands of applications i seriously doubt they're going to consider me 
And then they called me back for a second interview. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, that's really cool to know that I made it second round and then did the second interview. Same thing. Wasn't nervous at all because I was just like, I don't think that I'm going to get this job. And then went to the third round of interviewing. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I ended up getting the job. And I was really surprised. And and I remember talking to a buddy of mine after and, and about the whole articles thing. And they were like, yeah, that, that doesn't happen. Like, normally when you submit an article, they'll send it back and they'll have all these edits that they need you to make. They don't just accept it and publish it. I'm like, really? I thought that was just how it was. Because So I've never even talked to any of the editors really that I've submitted to, I guess. So I don't really know who they are. Um, and so I think I just kind of had like a, a natural aptitude for that, uh, for, for writing. Um, which I wasn't aware of at the time, but that's kind of lucky, I guess. And so, yeah, it was just luck. They, they just, I submitted an article, they liked my articles and they asked me not to hire me on as coach. I started working there as coach. And then um, I think about eight months ago, something like that, they, because uh, I was working remotely when I was in Canada, because I couldn't move over here during COVID, there were like travel restrictions. And then they, um, they just reached out and they were like, Hey, like, we're really looking to expand our educational uh, platform. Um, would you want to move into this position of, of director of education curriculum? And I was like, fuck yeah, I would. That sounds awesome because it's way more in line with what I'm really enjoy anyways, which is just learning. I enjoy learning and I enjoy like teaching and communicating. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing since. So it's honestly just sort of luck, I guess, <laughs> uh, that, that I was able to get into these positions. So when I think of Kabuki, I think of some of the bars, some of the the mace work. Um, if you wouldn't yeah. mind, can I educate us all on the background of Kabuki and then and then what you guys are offering in 2022? Uh, yeah, so Kabuki is kind of this sort of multifaceted organization where we're an engineering and, and manufacturing company where we have several patents. I don't exactly know off the top of my head, but a lot of different patents for specialty bars, different equipment, uh, flywheel machines, um, all sorts of different stuff. So they have a big manufacturing side. And then they also have like an educational side, which is kind of what I'm more responsible for now. Um, so in there, we teach seminars. Uh, coming up in February, actually, we have this, this big thing that we launched a couple of years ago, which is called Kabuki Education Week, where essentially we have 50 plus subject matter experts and industry leaders um, do a video conference for like about an hour to 90 minutes uh, lecture on a specific topic. And you can get, uh, you can sign up for it for like a couple hundred bucks and you get over 50 lectures. It's freaking, it's actually pretty bonkers. Um, and then I think you also get access, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure you also get access to all this, all the previous KEWs. So you have like 150 lectures or something crazy like that. So we have that as well. And that's in February. Uh, February 6th to 12th. So yeah, for from the week of the 6th to the 12th, every day we've got a bunch of speakers lined up and you just kind of join in virtually or you can get the recordings or whatever after the fact. Um, we teach seminars, we teach conferences, we have uh, a digital education as well. And then that's a big part of what I'm doing now. So making just digital courses. We just did, uh, uh, what was it? I just did the powerlifting certification for USPA, which is a powerlifting federation. Um, so now that's their like level two powerlifting certification that they have. Um, we're working with like other organizations and franchises to develop educational curriculum for them. Uh, we outfit 100% of major league baseball teams with their equipment. Um, 
we do like 80 or 90 percent of nfl and, and nba teams as well we we uh do a lot of their equipment for them and then we're also getting into uh, education for them and for their coaches as well so that their coaches can be more effective at training their athletes uh, and then we have the actual coaching side of things where we have coaches in-house uh, that do online so virtual coaching and we just coach athletes to basically do whatever they want to do whether they want to crush world records or they want to just be healthy and fit they want to lose some weight they want to do whatever um yeah we've coaches to do all that stuff. so that's kind of the the long and the short of it um and the main focus is that everything we do is kind of predicated on a couple of things um, we want to kind of inspire people to live better lives through strength which ultimately enhances their resiliency what they can do and this isn't just physical either it's also psychological because anyone who's actually trained for any you know period of time knows that it's not just the physical characteristics that, that change you become more disciplined you learn the importance of community and teamwork you you learn like delayed gratification you learn emotional uh you learn emotional um maturity and a variety of other things that you have to have in order to achieve a certain level of athletic performance so that's kind of what the uh, not kind of that's, that's exactly that's the mission statement <laughs> of, of the company is is um you know is is to do that so uh that's kind of the long and the short of it i've never really been asked to, to talk about the company like that so i hope i did it justice but uh really really great group of people here a lot of super smart coaches and educators i'm very fortunate to to be able to work alongside them and learn them. And then uh, we have the podcast as well, which which we just launched. So, or Brilliant. relaunched, I guess. So, and the podcast is called? Uh, Strength Chat. Strength Chat, okay. Yeah. Oh, so, Stack Strength, is that your own podcast then? Stack Strength is my podcast, yeah. Okay, so we got both of those. Beautiful. Um, as a tangent again, as I've progressed through... Um, I shifted my training quite a bit. When I got in the fire service, I went from, as I said, you know, being taught kind of bodybuilding stuff. Again, I wasn't a bodybuilder. I was just trying to be fit and strong for life and martial arts. Um, but as I progressed, I went into to CrossFit. But then I, again, kind of really dove into the research and realized some of the things that we were doing that create injuries and fix those and imbalances and were uh, trained with uh, Julian Pinot one day and had him on here a bunch of times and really got into the strongman side. Um, and saw for me personally a combination of, of some of the CrossFit movements with a lot of the strongman movements work very well for the tactical athlete, the firefighter. What are your perceptions? I know we talked before you don't work with a lot of tactical athletes, but I know you're bringing a course into your community. What are some of the mistakes and or some of the the underutilized strength training elements that you see you know should be used more in the tactical community yeah so uh to clarify i don't work tons in that field but tons like kabuki has a very long history of working with uh with tactical tactical athletes and first responders and things like that um so i'll just kind of preface it with with that but I think what it really boils down to is a needs analysis. So understanding who you are as, as an athlete. Now we can create some sort of broader generalizations about what's needed. So for instance, you probably need to be decent at carries. You probably need to have a good aerobic capacity. You probably need to have good balance. Um, when, when, you know, during gait cycle, uh, there, there's a variety of different things you probably need. So, 
we can break it down from like a population level and say, okay, these are the main skills and, and abilities that you need. But then when it comes to an individual level, you need to refine that process much, much more because person A might be able to pick up a freaking car, but they have zero capacity. So sure, they can toss like two or three people on their shoulder or whatever and walk out the door, but they won't make it to the door because they'll pass out because they're in such bad shape, right? So there's a sort of blend. And, and like you were saying, strongman is fantastic. CrossFit type training. I mean, CrossFit is CrossFit, but essentially multimodal training is what CrossFit essentially is. Multimodal training is it's fantastic for, for first responders because it incorporates all the different elements of, of athletic ability that they actually need, right? So there are more, um, there are different carries that can be done in different ways because you're not always going to have like, let's say a barbell to pick up, right? We might be looking at oblong objects or if you're carrying out a person or a dog and they're moving and things like that. So maybe having a sandbag, maybe doing an offset carry, maybe suitcase carries. So a variety of different carries and maybe stone picks and sandbag picks and different things like that can be very, very helpful for uh, somewhat simulating some of the movements that you're going to encounter in your actual day-to-day work. Then you can look at just general resiliency, which I think is an incredibly underutilized um element of training for first responders because especially like if you're if you're a police officer or if you're if you're a firefighter like you might be running into a place where the floor or something gives out and it's unstable and you trip and you fall or whatever you need to actually make sure that your tissues are prepared enough to be able to get a little bit banged up right uh, if you're if you're a parachuter you need to make sure that if you land that constant high impact isn't going to completely trash your knees hips back and ankles right so there's a level of orthopedic health that also needs to be built into the training. And this is probably one of the bigger things that I've seen is orthopedic health um, is often neglected. People are usually thinking performance, 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 and that's fantastic. But we need to also look at the side of rest, recovery, and rejuvenation. If we don't have rejuvenation, we can't continue to perform. So a lot of the times uh, training is very short-sighted in the sense that um, – It'll be based on what athletic qualities do we need to develop while kind of neglecting some of the rejuvenative, sorry, some of the restorative components of of training as well. So looking at things like knee health, like joint health, looking at things like stability and balance um, and a variety of different things like that, that can really help allow you to train and perform at a high level. I'm using performance in the sense of like your, the execution of your job, obviously, uh, while simultaneously reducing or minimizing any potential risk of injury, you know? So I think that's one really, really uh, undervalued element of training is injury risk management and orthopedic health just in general. Um, And that, that can come from kind of a broader understanding of volume load tolerance, but it can also come in, in the frame uh, or sorry, in the form of like exercise selection, making sure that we're utilizing, um, you know, full range of motion or full exercise range of motion, putting ourselves in kind of positions where we are uh, at, at longer muscle lengths. And I don't want to say compromised positions, but in positions that you might get yourself into uh, and so that we can develop stability uh, and, and strength in those positions as well. So it creates a little bit more of a buffer. Like if I'm never used to going out like this, and I'm doing a pec fly, and then all of a sudden something happens, and I, I drop, and I get there, and I have a heavy weight. I don't necessarily have a buffer, and I might hurt something, right? But if I'm used to getting into that position, now I can come out of it, and I might tweak something, but it might not necessarily be as bad as if I hadn't had that sort of level of resilience or robustness of the tissues, and and also just kind of the motor 
motor skills to, to get out of there safely. Um, so I think resiliency is a really, really big component. Does that sort of answer your question? No, it does. Absolutely. And I want to talk about the recovery side because that's a huge missing piece in the first responder profession. Um, before I do, though, the aging athlete, I have this perception now that I'm probably as fit and strong as I'm going to be unless I, you know, decide to go and become a strength athlete and really just focus on that, which is not not my my uh, goal. But I realized that for me personally, I think if I address my mobility, my strength and endurance would in, would increase because I'm almost 50 now and I realize that some things just aren't moving the way that they are supposed to. With the kind of you know middle-aged athlete, what are some of the the commonalities that you're seeing that are preventing um, either creating injury and or preventing progress and and you know um, execution and performance? Um, they're a variety, but most of the time they're practical. Um, most of the time they're not age-related. Um, so if, if we look at it this way, let's say you're 20 years old and you're a college student, you really don't have a lot to worry about, you know, especially if your parents are footing the bill, you don't really have a lot of stress. You just got to have fun, get decent grades, do your thing, right? If you're 35 and let's say you have a uh, a child and you have a wife or, or a husband or whatever it might be, you've got a lot more responsibilities. And so those responsibilities are going to essentially pull away from some of your adaptive reserve. You might want to think of it as like a bucket and you can only put so many things in that bucket before it starts to overflow. Now you can increase your bucket size over time by increasing your work capacity, by being more efficient in certain things. But even that has kind of a limit to how large you can kind of upgrade your bucket to, so to speak. So understanding the general constraints is going to be very important because as an athlete, you have to gain momentum. And momentum comes when you have alignment in your lifestyle. And I use that term holistically, not just, you know, in, in one aspect, right? Not just in fitness. So are you getting enough sleep? Is your diet aligned with your actual performance-based goals? Is your diet aligned with your lifestyle goals? Because maybe you still want to take your, your wife out on a date and you guys want to be able to enjoy great food together and enjoy each other's company. And food is a huge part of social connection and, and, and that relatability component. So are all of these things aligned? How is your stress levels? Do you have good stress management um, sort of coping abilities, let's say? How is your general mood? What is your perception of training? How meaningful are these, are, are these goals to you? Do you enjoy the type of training that you're doing? All of these things are going to play a significant impact, whether it's you know more objective or whether it's more subjective. But both things are still empirical data points. And all of those things have to be taken into account. So I think the alignment of an individual's lifestyle is going to be the most significant driver. So getting enough sleep, checking off those really, really big boxes. We don't need to worry about supplementation or nutrient timing if you're not even getting enough protein in or if you're not even getting enough sleep in, right? And all of those are going to be individually determined based on the level of trade-offs that you're willing to make. So exactly like you said, hey, you know what? I've kind of reached the limit of, of my capacity unless, and you kind of have the caveat, unless I decide to go all in on strength which is a really important caveat because if you did, or even if we were to change up your, your current training paradigm, but just maybe make it a little bit more efficient or whatever we might do, maybe we could still leak out a little bit more results. But if you were to just switch to strength, guaranteed we can get a lot more of it. Right. So what sort of trade-offs are you willing to make? Right. And understanding the individual is a really, really important part of, um, 
of kind of coming up with the effective protocol that they are going to intervene with. So lifestyle comes first and sort of adapting like what that's going to look like and what the process is going to look like, because it has to be a client centered approach. In, in my opinion, we're not just looking at training. We have to look at everything else and say, how is this going to fit into your lifestyle? And then once we've kind of conducted a good enough um, approach for that, we can just start kind of checking off boxes and slowly progress. And it doesn't need to be perfect. We don't need anything like crazy advanced just yet. We just start with where you're at and then we make very slow steps that are progressive that you can tolerate over time until eventually we build up into this freaking monster athletically that you want to be or, or whatever it is that you want to be. Um, from an orthopedic health standpoint and re recovery, mobility, all of that stuff, uh, I'm a big believer that your injury risk protocol and your uh, orthopedic health protocol should be part of your training. I don't understand why people waste a bunch of time foam rolling and stretching and doing all this stuff when it's really not going to move the needle for you. If you want to improve your mobility, load the position. Force is the language of tissues. And what I mean by that is in order to create chronic changes in your tissues, you have to apply force. If you just do foam rolling, that's going to last for about seven to 15 minutes is what the research shows. So you foam roll, and then you foam roll your quads, and then you foam roll your hamstrings, and then you foam roll your back. By the time you get to squats, any of the potential transient adaptations have already gone by the time you work up to your working weight. So what are you doing? You're just wasting time. It's 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 a very low ROI activity. Then doing a lot of these, you know, training on unstable surfaces. Why are we training on unstable surfaces? That doesn't improve your stability. It decreases your stability. And it actually decreases force production as well. So now we're getting the worst of both worlds. And we're just wasting time again. So making sure that we're actually choosing exercises that are going to put you into the positions that you need in order to maintain or preserve certain range of motion or even, you know, improve range of motion in required areas based on your individual needs. So let's say you need to improve your hip mobility. Okay, well, we might be doing like a split squat or a front foot elevated split squat. Then we might go to, you know, just a split squat on the floor. Then we might progress to rear foot elevated split squat. Then we might go to Cossack squat. So now we're mobilizing the hips kind of three-dimensionally, and we're doing a variety of different things in order to do that. But we're also getting a lot of actual good quality training. If you've ever done Bulgarian split squats, they're fucking brutal. And it's not like a regular squat where you're like, oh, now I'm, I'm good at the squat, and it's hard, but it feels good. Bulgarians never feel good. The better you get, they don't become easier. They just always suck. Uh, but they mobilize your hips really well. They get you into a good degree of, of ankle flexion, a good degree of hip extension on the rear leg, and they give you a good degree of hip flexion on that front leg. So we're, we're training all sorts of uh, mobility requirements, and we're increasing our capacity in those positions. Positional capacity is incredibly important when we're talking about injury risk management. Because again, if we get out of position, are we strong here? Are we stable? Can we get back into that safe position? Um, and so you're, you're building up positional tolerance, you're building up strength, you're building up muscle and you're building up resiliency. Uh, same thing when you're doing the Cossack squat, maybe you're doing like a single arm overhead press. Maybe instead of doing like a regular tricep press down, we decide to do a, a tricep extension overhead because now we have the shoulder in, in, uh, sorry, inflection here. And then we've also got the tricep extended because the triceps do a lot of different functions. They, they help stabilize the shoulder. They extend the, the shoulder, but then they, 
sorry, they extend the elbow, but then they also extend the shoulder and do this motion here. So if we're up like this, now we're training the triceps from a slightly different angle, but we're also mobilizing the shoulder simultaneously. So finding ways to, to enhance mobility that aren't just mobility or what you would normally consider mobility, right? Just being a little bit more intelligent and, and methodical with your uh, exercise selection and execution can be really, really impactful for uh, increasing longevity, improving tissue health, um, improving active and dynamic range of motion and, and things like that. Because again, you might be able to reach down and touch your toes, but then at the same time, you try and lift your leg up when you're standing and you can't even get it to your hip level, right? So passive flexibility is not the same as, as active range that you can actually uh, sort of get into and, and own those positions. And, and positional dominance is really important when it comes to, um, well, I guess kind of a lot of the stuff that you do. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that aligns with... Um... There's one group that I, I love, the foundation training, where it almost looks like yoga, but there the whole time you're in these positions, you're using your body as a, as a fulcrum. You're putting weight, um, strength and length, as they say. Um, and then Ben Patrick was on the knees over toes guy. And if you ever come across that and some of the things that he does is exactly what you're talking about, Bulgarian squits, split squats and some of these other movements. Um, and it just makes perfect sense to me that that passive stretching can be an adjunct but as far as you know the focus being in these positions i mean even the the bottom of the squat if you listen to um ido portal and people like that i mean they spend they have a challenge like every every uh, day try and be in the bottom of a squat for 30 minutes watching tv or whatever and it's funny because you look at it and go well that can't be that hard and then you do it and you're like oh shit <laughs> i'm in terrible shape because i can't sit in the bottom of the squat for more than two minutes without cramping up so it does make a lot. And then, as you said, then you add weight to that and, and create strength in that, that um, end range of motion. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think one important thing to point out as well is all of those, all of those kind of sort of testers that you mentioned that I talked about are all individual specific. I will never, ever sit down for 30 minutes and squat because I don't need to and I don't want to. Right. So it's completely irrelevant. It's not a functional movement because function is relative to whatever tasks you need to do as an individual. So a lot of the times if someone says, oh, you had to do this because it's functional, it's like functional to what? Right. Like uh, we, we need to have balance. People always talk about balance. All right. We'll look at a, a baseball player. There's a massive discrepancy in terms of range of motion capacity on from one side to the other. If they're a pitcher. Right. Are we seriously going to try and bring that guy back into balance? It's like you're going to ruin his multi-million dollar career just because you're trying to establish some arbitrary assumption that balance is effective and, and better somehow. It's like balance is not effective. Uh, we always function more and perform better in asymmetry as top-level athletes. And it, it's about us understanding like what you need as an athlete, what your goals are, what you want to do. And so like I've got a friend who, same thing, he's a big uh, fan of Ido Patel. He sits in and squat for like 10, 15 minutes a day as well. And he's really impressive the way he moves. It's really cool. He does that like animal flow stuff. And it's like, he's got a level of mastery of his body. He's also really jacked and strong. So it's really impressive. I'm a powerlifter. Why do I need to do that? You know, <laughs> like, so, so yeah, a lot of these things that we're talking about, it's not to say that you should do this. You should do that. It's like, what's relevant to you, your goals, all that stuff, and then figure that out and then just do that stuff. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more topic and then we'll go to some closing questions, which I think is a universal accepted thing for all human beings, pretty much. The population that's listening, a lot of them work shifts. The American firefighter 
on average works a 56 hour work week so there'll be 24 hours straight awake pretty much and then there'll be a 48 period 48 hour period where they get to go home and then rinse and repeat so what that looks like is every third day you're not sleeping for 10 20 30 years coming from the sporting and performance background talk to me about the the importance of sleep in the athlete and the probability of injury if they're not getting the rest and recovery that you touched on earlier so there's a lot of research on this um shift work is really problematic for a variety of reasons um a single night of, of sleep deprivation okay i'm not talking about staying up all night i'm talking about sleep restriction so let's say instead of sleeping eight hours you only sleep five okay which is not crazy uncommon not just among shift workers just among people in general a single night you see a significant reduction in what's called psychomotor vigilance. So your ability to um, sort of understand and execute different tasks, right? Um, your reaction time is slowed. Your um, your perception is, is slowed. So something happens by the time you notice it, that process slows down. Um, your speed slows down your agility is is impaired your reaction time is is impaired um your cutting performance your shooting performance if you're a basketball player your sprint times all, all these things go down your power output goes down after just one night of sleep strength seems to be the most resilient characteristic so uh from a lot of the research that i've seen usually will take about a couple days to a week for you to really see like significant impairments in strength but at the same time, like any actual strength athlete who's competing at a high level, if you have one bad night of sleep, that can definitely mess up the next day. Definitely. So it is contextual on, on the level and what it is you're actually doing as well. Um, and then just in your health too, man, like just your like your, your stress response, your cardiovascular health, your blood pressure, um, your risk of mortality uh, from, from various like um, – like heart health issues uh, goes up quite a bit. So sleep restriction is really, really a big deal when it comes to health, longevity, and performance. And I think a lot of the times people are like, oh, it's okay, I can just catch up, I can do this. No, you cannot. There is genetic variability in terms of people who require maybe less sleep than others. But on the whole, it's incredibly rare to see these outliers. Like so incredibly rare that I would feel very confident that anyone listening to this podcast, you're not it, you know? Um, most people are going to need a good amount of sleep and on a regular basis as well. Now, what a good amount of sleep is, does have quite a bit of variability depending on the individual, right? And, and their daily tasks, their energy expenditure, their physical and athletic ability and requirements throughout the day. So there is variability in there. And then there's also variability in terms of not just how long you sleep, so total sleep duration, but the actual quality of, of the sleep that you are getting. So there's a variety of different things that actually um, uh, work congruently to create either a good restful state or, um, you know, you might get seven or eight hours of sleep, but it's really low quality. So generally speaking, when you're looking at the research, it's measured as time in bed. They don't actually measure like how many hours you're like actually asleep. They measure time in bed. And then because it's a decent enough proxy, right? And then they can measure things like sleep latency. So sleep latency is, is the time between you actually go to bed and the time between you fall asleep, right? So whatever that gap is. 
Ideally, you want a very small level of sleep latency. You want to be able to hit the head on the, on the pillow and fall asleep pretty easily. You want to have deep, good quality sleep for the most part. And then when you get up, feel relatively refreshed and not feel super groggy. And there's a couple things that you can do for that, because if you're a shift worker, you're probably going to need to do quite a bit to make sure that you can actually get good quality sleep. Um, if you're not a shift worker, the most important thing you can do, not the most important, but there, one of the important things you need to be doing is getting up at the same time every single day. Don't sleep in, don't do, you know, have your regular schedules. Ideally, if you can, that's really important because that helps establish and reinforce your natural biological rhythms. Okay. Or these are sometimes called like circadian rhythms. So you need to make sure that you are aligned with your natural biological circadian rhythm in order to get the best quality of sleep. If you are a shift worker, that presents a lot of issues because obviously you're not in control of your, your sleep schedule sometimes. So some of the things that you can do are going to be making sure that you have a good um, evening routine. So good sleep hygiene routine. And there is sort of like conflicting evidence on what makes a good sleep hygiene routine, but a couple things that you can do are making sure that you are doing something relaxing in the evening. That's not super psychologically or emotionally engaging. So probably not watching some really scary horror movie or some really intense, you know, thriller reading a really intense book, right? Just something that's kind of mindless, right? So reading just some stupid love novel or whatever it is that you're really into, or just maybe having a bath, a, a hot bath, because a hot bath will actually decrease your core temperature. Um, finding ways to just relax, maybe dim the lights in your house, things like that. Uh, so those things can be pretty helpful because they'll kind of help sort of slow you down a little bit and then decrease that sleep latency. Uh, another thing is just managing your diet as well right? Um, so if you're eating a huge meal before bed, probably is going to disrupt your ability to maintain good quality sleep throughout the night. Um, you know, there is research showing that having carbohydrates kind of in the evening actually improves the quality of sleep that you have. But then there's something that might disrupt it depending on how much you have. And so I think that is a little bit more individual as well. I think the important things is you're just getting a good balanced nutritious diet in general and the timing of it probably doesn't matter quite as much, at least at this point, until you get to a point where you're really, really dialed into all of your, all of your metrics. But for now, just making sure that you're getting enough good quality protein in, you know, one gram per pound of body weight, you're getting a good amount of carbohydrates in and lots of fruits and veggies. So, you know, anywhere between five and 10 combined servings of fruits and veggies per day. Again, that's going to be scaled to the individual, their body weight, their size, level of activity, level of activity and all that stuff. Um, and then making sure that you have some sort of stress management activities and that you're actively doing things that make you feel good, right? So when I say that, I mean, are you going out with friends? Are you doing things that actually make you feel good? Or are you just stressed out all the time, constantly working? Like you need to make sure you're doing things that fill your cup. And all of that stuff works together to enhance the quality of sleep that you're getting because you're not going to be as stressed. You're going to be in a better mood. You're going to just feel more relaxed. You're going to have more fulfillment in life in general. And like, I know this sounds very airy-fairy, but all of these things do uh, intertwine to impact your, your quality of life, your sleep, all of these things. So this in and of itself is like a huge, huge thing to dive into, but you might want to talk to um, about sleep. If you want to do something specifically on sleep, you might want to talk to um, Nick Lamb or, oh gosh, why I've had him on my podcast twice and I cannot remember his name for the life of me for some reason. I'll, uh, I'll message you after, but he's, he, he really, really knows his shit when it comes to sleep. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you. Um, Greg Potter. That's the one. Greg Potter. Okay. I haven't heard of those two names. So that's brilliant because I'm always looking for more sleep people. Yeah. I mean, I do a lot of the things that you said. I mean, I wear blue blocking their prescription as well. Glasses. I, I just have my bed, the, the one lamp in the living room on, shut all the lights down and it works. You know, you feel that kind of sleep pressure start to grow. One more quick thing when we're talking about sleep. There are probably listening a lot of people here who take their job very seriously and they do train a lot in, you know, in the actual skills for the job. They also do their strength conditioning and a, a kind of uh, um, comment that's thrown around a lot of firehouses by deconditioned people is, you know, it's always the fit ones that get hurt. Now, my understanding of physiology and and when we actually repair there's an actual physiological reason why if every third day you're not sleeping, that you're doing these with all the best intentions, but you're kind of set up for failure when it comes to, you know, uh, processing new skills and, and the rest and recovery and rebuilding of, of muscles and connective tissue. So talk to me about the importance of sleep physiologically on gaining from that work that we're doing, taking our job seriously. Yeah. So, I mean, during sleep, you get all sorts of different things. You get memory consolidation, you get uh, skill consolidation. So motor motor learning uh, also happens. And a lot of these things are, are improved when you sleep. And, and it's, it's not only that they're improved when you sleep, it's also that when sleep is restricted, they're actually impaired. So it's not just that you don't get the benefit if you're sleep restricted, it's you actually get significant detriments or, or degradation uh, if, if your sleep is restricted. So, um, for instance, your rate of motor learning will go down if you're sleep impaired, right? So, so the time that it takes for you to learn new motor skills or new technical skills will go down. You will actually be a slower learner, uh, both physically and then also probably cognitively as well. Your, um, your, your physical sense of, of effort, right? So subjective evaluation of effort actually goes up as well. You become less likely to take on cognitively demanding tasks. So there's a variety of different things that actually are going to impair your performance, specifically because you're not getting that time to sort of reconstitute everything, but then also you have this increasing burden, right? Like imagine doing a workout and then you do another workout, not just tomorrow, but you do another one today. That's going to be much, much harder to recover from than if you just did one workout a day. So it's almost like you're, you're, maybe that's a bad example. Let's say you're training super hard and you're trying to build strength, but you're not eating enough calories, right? Your, your body on the one hand, you're giving it the signal, hey, I need to grow, hey, I need to get stronger. But then you're not actually providing it with the raw resources in order to grow, in order to become strong, in order to repair. So now it's just thinking about survival. So it's not going to think about any sort of anabolic responses. It's going to just be like, I just need to repair and make sure that I can handle that again. That's it. So when you do that, your risk of injury also goes up, right? So there's this whole repair process that occurs while you're asleep and you can't biohack your way out of that. Like a lot of the times people try and do all these different things, but the reality is you just need sleep period. So um, when you're, when you're sleeping, like you see glycogen repletion happening, you see, um, you know, muscle protein synthesis is still happening. Muscle protein breakdown is, is occurring as well, but hopefully MPS is outpacing MPB. So you're getting like a, po a positive or a net positive balance of, of protein. Um, 
you're looking at uh, the, the actual repair of tissue. And I'm not just talking about like little micro traumas that you have in your muscle from, from exercise, but also like just, you know, chronic stress or orthopedic stress on, on your joints and your soft tissues and your bones, all of these things that are occurring throughout the day on a regular basis. So if you're training really hard, you're inducing some sort of trauma to your body. And if we don't have the regeneration stage, which is largely driven by sleep, now we're just doing damage and never actually getting anything from it, right? So we have to make sure that we have both sides of that spectrum or both sides of the coin covered in order to make sure that you are going to see performance uh, down the road. So, you know, if you look at a cohort of individuals who doesn't exercise and they're not getting injured as much, and you look at a cohort who is exercising and they're getting injured, it's not necessarily accurate to say it's because they're exercising, it's because they're under-recovered, Right. And that's a really important distinction because those people who aren't exercising are probably at higher risk of injury too. It's just, they're never putting themselves in a position to be injured. Whereas the exercises are, and their only issue is that they're not recovering through sleep, which is shooting them in the foot. So in that case, they would need to prioritize sleep because no amount of, you know, tricky volume changes or anything like that is going to make up for insufficient sleep. So you just need to have both. And that's not necessarily a sexy answer, uh, but that's just the reality. Like if you want to perform, you have to make sure you find a way to do that. You can incorporate naps. You can incorporate like a bi or triphasic sleeping approach. There's a variety of different things that you can do. But at the end of the day, you just need to make sure that you are getting some sleep, that you are getting that time to uh, sort of regenerate and, and feel better, but then also actually do actually do physiological repair to your body. Well, thank you. I mean, firstly, that was a very comprehensive answer, you know, obviously addressing not only the, the physiological, you know, rebuilding of, of the body after stress and, and training, but also the motor learning side, which I think is very important. My, what, you know, my kind of case that I'm trying to build up for this community is we have devolved where we used to a hundred years ago, sit around a firehouse, petting the Dalmatian while the, you know, the horses were in the stables getting ready to pull the, uh, the, the trailer to the fire. Well, this is 2022. We have a fire and EMS combined system that run their asses off 24 hours a day. And their work week, as I touched on, is 56 hours a week, if not 80, if they're forced to stay another shift because they're un um, understaffed. So trying to get this community to understand that so many of the health issues that we're seeing mentally and physically are preventable, but we have to give these men and women more time off in between these shifts. We're asking people to stay awake when we're all in our beds asleep. Why are they working 16 hours more than the person at the bank or the grocery store? It's just insanity. So by, you know, exclamations like yours, um, it's kind of building this understanding that, hey, we're not just saying, oh, it's, it's hard being a firefighter and getting a violin out. These are biological causes that are creating danger acutely while we're actually doing our job. And then chronically, these people are barely lasting retirement before they pass away. Yeah, and that's that's a big reason for that as well. And I mean, that's also why when I was talking previously about like, you know, some of the programming considerations, one of the big things I touched on was was uh, uh, orthopedic health, but specifically for that reason is because there's this high degree of stress. And I use that more so in the umbrella term, right? There's emotional, physiological, psychological stress, and all of those things wear on an individual and make your risk of injury higher, right? 
even just being physically, like even being psychologically stressed increases your risk of injury. You're more likely to make a bad decision. You're losing focus. So there's like so many different things that go into it. So it's, it's hugely important. And what you said actually, I think is really shocking. I don't think most people really know the, uh, the actual average rate of mortality of uh, first responders. It's shocking, shocking how low it is. Like yeah. the average age. Well, especially um, when you contrast it, the people that are on the draw ground when they first get hired, when they're young, are probably a lot more physically and mentally resilient than the average civilian. Yet, I believe that we die on average 12 years younger than the average civilian, which is, you know, completely unacceptable. It, it's insane. Like, it's insane. Over a decade. Yeah. So there's a lot of important things that, uh, that you touched on there for sure. Well, I want to thank you so much. I want to be mindful of your time. So I'll just throw some quick uh, closing questions at you if you've got a moment. Um, the first one I'd love to ask, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Man, I, I read a lot. So I read like three to six books a week at least. So <laughs> there's a lot. Um, I would say one is Knowledge and Decisions by Thomas Sowell. That's a fantastic book. Um, another one is called Trust. I think it's called Trust. Anyways, um, and that's on, that's kind of discusses trauma and social relationships and things like that. I'll, I'll see if I can get you the actual book name. Uh, the other one would actually be that uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari. That one's fantastic. Um, the slight edge or tiny habits they're both kind of on the same thing tiny habits has a little bit more data and information kind of why that's actually the case mm. so i probably would recommend maybe that one uh tiny habits but they're both the same thing they talk about uh you know the sort of compound effect of behavior and how like if you want to accomplish something really big don't start really big start wherever you can and then just slowly progress and over time you'll get there um man um i don't know yeah sorry i just no that was I, a lot already that's good yeah. <laughs> thank you no you gave me a whole bunch all right well then same question but a movie and or documentary that you love um documentary i'm mike tyson is like has been my idol since i was a kid so um the the tyson documentary i think is phenomenal um, I think it's an absolutely amazing um, kind of depiction of his life and some stuff that he went through. And I think it's really, to me, it was really moving. Um, but I'm a huge Mike Tyson fan, so that's probably why. Um, another film, I'd say American History X. That one was very powerful. Um, that was very raw. And then uh, Shot Caller was also very raw and kind of powerful. I, for me, I really liked it because it was just real. There's a lot of gangster movies where you see in, in prison where it's just like stuff goes down. And it's like, that's not how shit really works. But when I saw those, it was like, they really did their homework. That's that's a very accurate portrayal. Like it, it was really, really done well, I thought. So um, those ones are really good. Um, most of the movies I like though are like, honestly, just to kind of decompress. So I'm really big Adam Sandler guy. I really like his movies because they're just fun, happy. You watch it, you feel good after. You just kind of like decompress or whatever. So all of his movies I'm a big fan of, or most of them anyways. 
Brilliant. Yeah, I had um, Ethan Suplee on a couple of times from American History X, and his his kind of metamorphosis from you know the the characters he used to play to who he is now is incredible. He, he's he's done an amazing job. So he actually works with. I think I, I spoke about him earlier. Was Doctor Mike Isertel from Renaissance Periodization. Um, he worked with him, I believe, and uh, and Biolane. So, I don't know. I said Biolane. This is Instagram handle and Lane Norton. <laughs> Uh, using his Carbon app, I believe. So he was using both of those guys that I mentioned earlier who were also smart and jacked doctors. So there you go. Guy did his homework. He did indeed. Well, speaking yeah. of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Oh, man. Um, I think Donnie Thompson. I don't know if you know who he is, but he he does uh, a lot of like U.S. military stuff, I believe. Um, yeah, I believe he's he does a lot of that stuff. So probably him. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. Yeah, actually, I also want to reach out to to Lane at some point and uh, Chris Duffin as well. There's a couple of people that I follow online that uh, I know you're somewhat affiliated with. Um, yeah. Okay, well then, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and Kabuki: What do you do to decompress? Um, it's funny because before I would just say like films or, or books, but now over COVID, especially, uh, relationships has been probably one of the biggest priorities for me, um, up there with like my career and, and athletic goals, uh, have been developing relationships. So spending time with friends, people I care about, I think that's probably one of the most important things you can do in your life, not just for me, but for everyone, maybe I'm biased, but that's so incredibly important. Well, just one thing I forgot to ask you, I'll just slide in here quickly. Speaking of, of, you know, community, I think in your bio, it touched on the fact that as you, you mentioned you came from poverty when you were young. Now you're trying to help bring strength and conditioning to maybe some of the underserved communities. So talk to me about that. Yeah. yeah so um, it's funny because I, I don't really talk about this. People, most people don't know. Um I do, I do a fair bit of like outreach work, uh, for, for youth. So on my website, it says you can see, I mean, I, I don't use it anymore, um, because it would be a conflict of interest working with Kabuki, but you can see like, it says sponsored youth program and it says $150 just cause I had it on there, but they end up not paying me anything. So I just end up doing it for free because I mean, they're fucking poor, man. Like, what am I going to do? Right. So, um, yeah, just getting them involved in sports, getting involved in exercise, I think is incredibly important. Like I said, I'm a huge believer that if you want to, if you want to actually make an impact, you have to start with kids like kids. That's, that's the future. That's where, you know, these changes really need to start. And I think for, for me, if I had someone who was like that, that would have really changed the trajectory of my life. Um, and a lot of the people, in my family, a lot of my friends at that time who unfortunately ended up like prison, jail, dead, whatever, you know? So, um, I think that's incredibly important. And now that I just moved to Portland as well, uh, I'm trying to expand that program. And actually I started contacting high schools and I want to actually start like a, a kind of a community where we can all lift together. And it's like the lifting's not necessarily the important part. It's essentially just the vehicle that I would be using to get these kids to create some friendships, to learn what hard work looks like, to see something other than, you know, drugs, gangs, all that, all that crazy stuff that people can kind of get pulled into. Um, maybe offer some like guidance, things like that. I don't know that I would be the person to really mentor anyone, 
but even offering them resources or creating contacts where maybe I can, uh, over time, offer scholarships to kind of help them get into better schools or connect them with other people because I'm very well connected in in the industry. And so if this is something they're interested in, I can help them there. I can, you know, um, talk to other people in, in higher, higher education because they do have a lot of contacts there as well. So maybe just helping them in that way. And ideally, I'd like to turn it into some sort of like more mentorship program, kind of like big brother, big sister type thing. But this is sort of what it's starting out as. Uh, and now, now I'm just new in Portland. And so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the process that I'm in right now. I'm still kind of in that initial stage of, of building the, those connections with, with the high schools and stuff like that. Beautiful. Well, I mean, that's the third leg of the stool, I think. We talked about the home, which obviously a child is in no control of whether there's one parent, two parents, no parents. You talk about the school. There are some great schools out there, great mentors in the school system, and there's some fucking awful ones. We all know there are. Um, and so the third leg is is the, the mentor in the community. You know, you, you try and fix your own home, and then you step outside your front door and you go, who can I help? What is my skill set? What can I do to to inspire the youth that, that I live among? So I think it's it's incredible. Yeah, it's 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 pretty important. It's something that I'm pretty passionate about. And it was funny because it never became important to me when I was broke because I think it's hard to look for other people to help other people when you're always trying to kind of tread water. But once you get to a place where financially you're good, your life is going well, your career, all this other stuff, then you kind of are like, man, I need something more to to make my life mean something, you know? And uh, that's when it really hit me. Again, same thing during COVID was was when I was like, holy fuck, like I've got a lot of stuff that I could be doing that I'm just not. And uh, yeah, it's become something that's pretty, pretty important to me over the last little while. So yeah, I think people don't realize as well that, you know, you're doing something for others and that that whole it takes a village. I mean, that's a very universally accepted philosophy in some of the less developed countries. Um, but it's also very rewarding. And you hear a lot of people that have been through their own mental health struggles. One of the most healing elements is when they start giving back and they start helping others. A hundred percent. And like, for me, it's been really cool. So like I... <laughs> Get a little emotional. Sorry. Um, I had, I had a, uh, I had a, uh, a kid who, who I was coaching, who ended up reaching out to me and, um, I didn't know this at the time that he was really struggling with stuff, but I've been working with him for, um, about, <clears throat> about six months, um, at this time and he, he ended up sending me an email being like hey man uh just want to say like thank you so much for everything you've done for me um it's it's really helped and like just because you know send me stuff we kind of will try and chat and stay in touch or whatever and uh while i'm coaching him and then um you know basically saying like hey this big long thing ended with like i was going to kill myself and literally the only reason i didn't was because you were always hitting me up every week being like, Hey man, your check-ins not filled in what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Always like caring. And then whenever he'd say like, he was struggling with some stuff, I was never like bitching at him. I was always like, okay, well, you know what? If you want to talk, we can always chat, blah, blah, blah. And, and just stuff like that. And when, um, yeah, I don't know that. <sighs> Sorry. That, um, that was really, really impactful for me because, um, you just don't know, right? So, being able to help him out uh, was was a, a really big thing for me. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think that underlines. It's the same with this podcast. I always tell people, 
yes, there's a you know large number of downloads now, but initially my philosophy was is, is was this, was this and it is the same if it helps a single person. You know, same in the fire service. If you if you change one life, whether it's just through your kindness and compassion, or whether you physically drag someone out of a situation, all the effort is worth it. You know, everything else is a bonus. And but you have to be present. You know, and that's that's amazing that you stepped up after the the journey that you've been through yourself, and now you were able to be that that pillar for someone else, and you literally saved a life. So I commend you. Yeah, thanks. I mean, like I said, I don't necessarily know that I'm really cut out to mentor anyone but at, at the very least i can get them active i can give them like a social circle and do other things like that that uh they can kind of have other options for so absolutely well i'm sure people listening want to learn more about you i mean i've been fascinated you're such an articulate and well-read member of the strength and conditioning community where are the best places online to find you yourself and then also kabuki yeah. So first off, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate the the opportunity to be on the podcast. Um, it was it was a really cool chat. And like I said before, I, I'm a big fan as well. So it's cool to be on this side of things. Uh, probably the best place to reach me is on uh, Instagram at Daniel underscore DeBrock. That's where all my stuff is. I have a YouTube and I post up my podcast there. And then it's also available on the other streaming platforms. But pretty much everything is is through Instagram for me. Um, I have my podcast. I have my link tree. I have my Twitter, which I just signed up for. Um, but Instagram is where I'm most active. That's where I post the most content. And then, uh, Kabuki is just Kabuki strength. Uh, you can find them at kabukistrength.com <laughs> and then they have like a Kabuki strength Instagram, but then they also have like virtual coaching Instagram, um, and an education Instagram as well. So you can find them there. And, uh, yeah, we're doing a lot of really cool things in 2023 that, uh, that I'm very excited about. So stay tuned, I guess. Beautiful. Well, again, I just want to thank you. It's been over two hours we've been talking. We've gone all over the place, which is what my favorite kind of conversation. But I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time today. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Yeah.